We'll grab a Bible if you have one and open to Exodus chapter 20. It's the second book of your Bible. Uh, so it's really close to the front. Find chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verse 17 today. If you don't have a Bible, don't fret. We're going to have the words on the screen for you. Or you can use your phone to navigate to Exodus chapter 20 through the Bible app or even just Google. If you just Google Exodus 20, uh, you can find it there from probably the first link that pops up. So um, I want you to be looking at God's Word today with us, have it open somehow in front of you. It's so, so important. You know, we live in a town with four colleges. Did you know that? Marshall, Texas, four colleges, pretty cool. And you might have heard because of that, uh, this word that floats around in college circles, something college professors do for their students in every class called a syllabus. Now, some of you are like feeling some anxiety already creeping up and just hearing the word syllabus because you know syllabus means all the expectations are laid out on day one for the whole class that's what that is it's a packet of papers that has everything in it. it's got the learning objectives it's got uh, the the way you're going to be graded it's got the course projects it's got all the papers you're going to have to write it's one of those things that can feel very heavy at first in fact, there's two ways to look at a syllabus uh, there's a way to look at it like most college freshmen coming into college see that first syllabus on their first day of class and they look and they flip through it and they go oh my goodness how are we ever going to get all this done this is only one class I'm supposed to read all these books do all these papers I got four more classes to go to and they see it as a burden that's how you can look at a syllabus it's a burden and it's heavy you get all the expectations right up front, but the other way to see the syllabus is something maybe a little more experienced students have learned to do, which is to see it as a blessing. Can you imagine trying to successfully complete a course of study without knowing what was expected of you? How would you know how much was enough? How, how would you know how to get to the end? How would you know how to make the professor happy? How would you know how you're going to be graded? I mean, this is a different way to look at it that yeah, it's kind of heavy to get all of it on day one, but it's a great blessing to have it because it's kind of a form of grace. Now I know what's expected of me. Well, there's a strong parallel here uh, to the ancient world of the Old Testament, specifically the Ten Commandments, which we've been studying for a couple months now. Uh, a lot of people see the Ten Commandments as a burden, just like some college freshmen might see a syllabus as a burden. Uh, they see it as an impossible list of rules uh, meant to frustrate us, to always put us down and make us feel guilty. But the growing Christian sees God's commands as a blessing because they teach us God's design for how life works best. They act as a sign pointing us to the Savior. They even serve to refine us as we follow Jesus and become more like Him. So today we're gonna wrap up our study of the Ten Commandments by looking at the 10th and final command in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And so I want you to just focus on it. I'm going to read it for us out loud, and you just follow along silently with me in your Bible or on the screen. Exodus 20, verse 17. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Seems pretty straightforward, right? 
It's interesting if you've been tracking with us from the beginning, uh, from all the way back to the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20, what Kevin DeYoung says, one writer writes about the Ten Commandments, he points out there's kind of a strange trajectory that if you go back to the beginning, he says it starts with lofty ideals. And you can look at it like in verses one and two, it says, I am the Lord your God. I mean, this is huge, booming voice coming from the mountain, right? This is the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And then by the time he gets to 10, he ends with, stop looking at that donkey. (laughs) That seems kind of silly, right? But what we'll find as we look at the 10th commandment is that it's not just a silly command that's easily done or not done. It's actually a serious reverberation of the first command. It's a serious reverberation of the first command. The New Testament book of Colossians in chapter three says explicitly, covetousness, which is the sin of the 10th commandment, covetousness is idolatry. Well, that sounds a lot like the first commandment, right? You should have no other gods before me. So in other words, these commands are like bookend warnings against things and thoughts that can dethrone God in our lives. So the 10th command shifts our focus to internal forces, which can lure us away from worshiping God alone. Coveting's an invisible sin. You can't see it. In fact, if you were studying the commands with us and you got all the way through one through nine, uh, you go back and even read those again, you might start to think that God only cares about how you act, what you do or don't do with your life. But then the 10th commandment comes in and focuses on what's on the inside of you. And it turns out that you can sin against God and other people even by never physically doing anything. It can be internal. This is the way Jesus understood all the commandments. I mean, the 10th is explicitly internal. It's about what goes on inside of you. But we know from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, as Jesus reiterates the Ten Commandments, that he actually says that all of them begin on the inside. That if if you're going to murder somebody, well, that's one thing, but all of us are guilty of murder in our hearts because we've been angry wrongfully at our brother or sister. He says uh, that if if you're going to lust then yeah, certainly adultery is against the Ten Commandments, but even lust of the heart, just thinking about another person in that way is adultery on the inside. So Jesus understood all the commandments this way. Coveting is just explicitly internal. The word covet actually means desire. This is the kind of root-based level meaning of the word covet. Not all desire is wrong or bad, right? I mean, have you ever said the phrase, I covet your prayers? I mean, that's a good thing to desire, right? But coveting as a sin is desire gone wrong. Listen to this definition. Coveting is desiring what you don't have or what someone else does have, believing it will solve your problems or satisfy your longing. That's what the sin of coveting is. It's desire gone wrong. We are designed by God for desire. This is part of our hard wiring, and the Bible's full of examples of godly desires. I know I kind of mentioned we desire for prayers from others. That's good. We desire for a mate. 
This is godly, right from the beginning in Genesis. Uh, it's good to have a mate, right? We desire adding kids to our families. This is a good godly desire. We desire, you know, to increase our means through hard work and investments. These are the Proverbs are full of wisdom about these kind of things. We desire to be in the presence of God, like the Apostle Paul, who would eventually say, you know what, it might even be better for me to go and be with the Lord rather than stay and be with you. These are good godly desires. So the problem is, as one pastor says, not that we have desire, but that we desire the wrong things, or we desire good things in the wrong way. We're gonna talk about that more, but think about what you desire. Is it uh, a certain salary? Is it a newer car? Uh, a promotion at work? Uh, is it having rich parents? This is something from my childhood. I just wanted to throw this in there for you kids. I know that every kid thinks that like some other kid has it better, right? I remember going to a friend's house and I knew they were wealthy. They lived in a modest house, but here's how I knew they were wealthy. It's because every time I showed up at their house, my friend's mother would offer me a yoohoo. Do you know what a yoohoo is? It's those little chocolate drinks, you know, they're really not that good now that I'm an adult. But as a kid, I thought this is the this is the penultimate experience. I mean, you got yoo-hoos in your fridge and you're just dilling them out, you know, like whoever comes over can have a yoo-hoo. Like if they ever showed up in my house, it would be a miracle. Like somebody got a bonus or something. And then if we had them, I better not even touch them because you know it's for like some kind of special occasion. So if I'm not asking for it, I better not get it. Well, here I am walking in and they're just yoo-hoo for you, yoo-hoo for you, yoo-hoo for you. And I'm like, man, these people have it great. I wish my parents had as much as them then my life would be better. And that's where coveting happens. Maybe you want or desire a different body shape. Maybe you desire a well-decorated home. You ever think about the title of that magazine, Better Homes and Gardens? Uh, I just find this interesting. If you're standing there looking at Better Homes and Gardens and you look at the title, you just see it as a magazine, but you know what that title is specifically designed to do, right? It's designed to tell you that you don't have it good enough. What you have right now can be better. And if you will get that magazine and order the things in that magazine, if you'll do the things, make your house look like that house, make your garden function like that, cook the recipes that are in there, then your life can be better. Here's the problem with that. You get a subscription to Better Home and Gardens. You spend your entire life following every rule that Better Homes and Gardens gives you. Do you know what happens? You die and they're still coming up with new issues. There's better out there still. You're never gonna make it. I just think it's funny. Better homes and gardens. It's just right there. It's blatant. You don't have it good enough. Here's a better way. None of these things can do for us what only God can do. Fulfill us. To make us whole. Truly happy. Flourishing. So if God designed us for desire, but covetousness, covetousness is a sin, how is coveting a departure from God's design? Here's a few things that I just want to put out there. I think there's probably more, but this is sort of what the Lord led me to for this message, so maybe one will speak to you. The first departure from God's design is that coveting misinterprets reality. It misinterprets reality. Coveting is literally judging a book by its cover which is like advice that we all know is not good, right? We know we're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but that's actually what coveting does. It's the error of assuming that the thing we want, the better future out there, is what makes the person who has it happy. 
Let me say it again. This is the, coveting is making the error that thinking the thing we want is actually the thing that makes the person who has it happy. And maybe an even bigger error is thinking that they're happy at all. This is so interesting because God gives us an example in the Old Testament of Solomon. This man who is more wise than any person who has ever lived because of God's wisdom bestowed on him. And then ultimately because of that comes wealth beyond our wildest dreams. Even Jeff Bezos would look at this guy Solomon and be like, how'd you get that much money? So Solomon has an entire book of the Bible dedicated to his testimony. Uh, The thesis of his book, Ecclesiastes, is essentially this. It's that having everything a person could ever dream of and more was still not enough to satisfy human desire. Yet here we are, still all this time later, buying the lie that more is better and better is out there somewhere to be gotten. The global advertising industry, by the way, is worth $700 billion. That's every year. That's our money (laughs) that we give (laughs) because advertising works, because they promise intangible results with tangible things. We know it's a crock. The testimony is there that it will not satisfy, yet we continue to buy the lie. Coveting misinterprets reality. We're living in a fantasy world, not in God's world when we covet. How about this? Coveting is rebellion against God's rule. Rebellion against God's rule. Coveting, as some have defined, is making a God out of a person or object. You remember Colossians 3? Covetousness is idolatry. So you can see how that works out. Coveting is making a God out of a person or an object, object, but Coveting is also the quickest way to make a God out of myself. Think about that. Now we know, yeah, we can make a God out of something else by wanting it more than God, but what does that actually mean about us? It means that I'm saying I can determine what's best for my life. It's saying that I know what will truly satisfy me. Oh, I know God says that, and I, yeah, I believe in God, but I am after this. I'm after more money, I'm after that better relationship, I'm after et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It puts me in the driver's seat of my life. It makes me the God of my life. And not only is it a sin vertically, it's also a sin horizontally um, against God and our neighbor because when I'm in charge of my life and I think that I am God, that means I secretly believe that everything and everyone must be subservient to me. So this is dangerous. This is dangerous territory. In fact, you could even describe coveting like this, uh, that it's, it's such a rebellion against God's rule that it's a secret coup to overthrow God. As, as God generously provides to his children, when we turn away from that and look to other things for, for fulfillment, and I say, I know that what God has said that he wants from me, but I know what's best, that in our hearts we're developing a secret coup to overthrow him but he's aware he knows he sees what's inside closely related to that coveting is selfishness coveting is selfishness this is why it's a departure from God's design Jesus said the second greatest commandment is to love my neighbor as myself which is quite impossible 
when I am preoccupied with wanting what my neighbor has for myself? How can I love my neighbor as myself when I want what he has for myself? We're not able to accomplish what Jesus says is the second greatest command, only second to loving the Lord our God with all that we are. It's selfishness. And it's not a victimless sin. I think it's easy to look at coveting and go, yeah, that's just between me and God. I mean, I've got these wants and desires in me, and I'll just keep them in me. I'll just let them live there. No one else has to know about them. But that cannot be true. One author said that, uh, that the person we are today is the sum total of the thoughts we've had for the last 30 days meaning that what's in you eventually comes out of you. It's like we had just had 4th of July, right? There's fireworks going off everywhere, and some of you are like, yeah, I wish they would have stopped, uh, you know, 1, 1 a.m., but they just kept going. Here's what happens to the firework. They pack munitions into these small tubes and light it on fire. It only takes a small spark to light a firework or a box of fireworks on fire. Well, here's what covetousness does. Covetousness, covetousness packs jealousy, envy, greed, anger, all of these things, it packs it down tight inside of you and it looks like it's no big deal until the spark hits, until the fuse gets lit. And something in your life is gonna light it and then you know what happens? Kaboom. It explodes. Do you know what those explosions look like? Go back in your 10 commandments and look at commandments five through nine. That's what it looks like. Dishonoring your parents, lying, Stealing, killing. This is what happens when we let covetousness stay in our hearts. It's selfish. It leads me to do what's best for me without regard for others. And then even worse, it leads me to do what's best for me sometimes with ill regard for others, which is one of the things that distinguishes coveting from its cousin jealousy or envy. It's not that it's just that you want that stuff they have. It's that you want them to suffer so that you can be happy. For them not to have it so that you can have it. This is what coveting, coveting is. Fourth, coveting rejects the grace of God. Coveting rejects the grace of God. Coveting essentially says to God, I deserve more than you're willing to give me. Now think about that. Contrast it with the definition of grace. Definition of grace being that God gives us more than we deserve. Out of his kindness and love and generosity, God treats us better than we deserve. But then covetousness, covetousness starts in our heart and it develops into this silent whisper that tells God, I deserve more. I know you've been gracious to, gracious to me, but I deserve more. One writer said that when we covet, we don't believe God is big enough to help us or good enough to care. Coveting is an expression of how much we think God owes us. Rejects the grace of God. It breaks God's design. So we have these hardwired desires. Desire is good. It's built into the fabric of who we are, but covetousness 
twists and perverts those desires and makes us look to the wrong things for fulfillment or to the right things in the wrong way, right? So how do we get back to God's design? How do we reclaim what God intended? How do we find fulfillment for our God-given desire? Well, the thing you have to remember is that desire is God-given and God isn't against our gain. God's not against us having more. But the promise of Jesus isn't a life of abundance. The promise of Jesus is an abundant life. And there is a difference. Abundance comes through accumulation, right? I gotta get more to have more, right? And then abundance is devastated by adversity. That as quickly as it comes, it can go. Man, East Texas, we know this, right? We've seen the oil industry up, down, up, down, right? This is what we have, love, a life of abundance and affluence, and then boom, it's gone. So abundance comes through accumulation, but it's devastated by adversity. On the flip side, the abundant life is found in contentment. Contentment is the antidote to coveting. And contentment is constant. This abundant life is never up and down. It's always abundant. It's constant because you know what? Contentment is not based on what you have. Contentment is based on who you have. The commandment is a sign that points us to Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes to a young pastor, Timothy, and he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So God's not opposed to our gain. He has a better vision for our lives. C.S. Lewis famously wrote that we are going on making mud pies in the slums because we can't imagine the life that's promised to us, which is enjoying vacation by the sea. He's not saying that we've desired too much and that's wrong. C.S. Lewis kind of says that we desired too little. We desire things that actually won't last where God offers us this abundant life that lasts forever and is enjoyable and glorious and full. And it's not that we've desired too much, it's that we've desired too little. So Jesus is the spiritual answer to this spiritual problem. Jesus himself actually talked about the Ten Commandments. I mentioned this in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 in his Sermon on the Mount. And he sort of restates a lot of them and gives a little more detail, talks about what's underneath uh, the Ten Commandments. Well, in chapter 6, he gives a warning against idolatry, the idolatry of possessions. Like if you just want to get more stuff, Jesus says, that's not going to satisfy you. If you just want to get more money, Jesus says, no man can serve both God and money. Right? One of them's going to win out. So he says, You know, idolatry is wrong. Possession is money. It's not going to work out. Then he follows that with assurance that God provides for all his people's needs. You remember this? He says, look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. Who feeds the birds? Who clothes the flowers in all their splendor? Is it because they've earned it? No, it's because God provides for them. How much more then will God provide for you? So Jesus warns against idolatry. He says God will provide for all his people's needs. And then he finishes this section with a restatement of the 10th commandment. Now the 10th commandment, do not covet. That's what we call a negative command. It's it's the do not. 
Well, Jesus gives the positive side of it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Jesus is the only source of contentment. Jesus, the righteousness of God, given for us so that we could come into and participate in the kingdom of God, which will last forever, is so much bigger and more glorious than we can ever imagine. And the answer to our problem of coveting is found in a person in Jesus Christ. He's the only source of contentment. He's our source, but he's also our example. Now, if Satan is the first example of coveting, Remember his story? That he wanted the glory that only belonged to God. He wanted it for himself. And so he had to be cast out. That's the story. He's the first example of coveting. If Satan is the first example, then Jesus is the perfect example of contentment. Listen to what Philippians chapter 2 says as Paul writes about Jesus. He says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, or some translations say grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. This is incredible news for us commandment breakers. We're never going to fulfill the commandments on our own power. We're never going to strive enough to make them all happen. We've all fallen short, the Bible says in Romans. So this is incredible news for us. Here's why. Jesus was content to give his life, to provide us with a salvation we could never acquire on our own. No amount of striving, no amount of good deeds, no amount of hard work, no amount of giving, no amount of anything. We could never achieve it. We could never acquire it. We could never accumulate salvation. It had to be given to us as a gift. And Jesus was content to sacrifice himself so that he could offer it freely to us. Jesus is our only source of contentment. The only currency that can afford contentment is faith in Jesus. And one day, when Jesus returns, he's going to judge all things and everything that doesn't hold up to his standard of perfection, everything that's not holy, everything that's not eternal, the Bible says will be burned up. Which ought to be a, a light bulb moment for us about all the things we want in this world. They're just not gonna last. That's a different sermon. They're not gonna hold up. They're gonna be burned up. But then what Jesus promises to do is that he's going to make the earth new again. And when he makes it new, it's going to be this glorious moment where heaven meets earth and the kingdom of God is established for eternity and Jesus reigns forever and we experience earth to its fullness. Well, part of that is that we will not be tempted to compare ourselves to other people. We won't have covetousness to fight against. We won't have all these broken relationships because of all these inner desires that are twisted. Instead, we'll be fully content can you imagine the joy and the fulfillment that will be that one day when everything that we need is ours and we're aware and we're grateful and we know it 
and we have God and one another, and we're experiencing the earth in its fullness, the kingdom of God in all its glory. This is a beautiful vision. And it's something that we ought to look forward to and live for. So that day, we'll have perfect contentment. We'll be totally fulfilled. But until that day, what do we do? We practice. We practice contentment as the antidote to covetousness. We practice it as a way to be more like Jesus. We practice it as a way to live on earth now as it will be in heaven. This is why we do it. So how do we do that? How do we practice? Well, in our last couple minutes, I just want to give you some practical tips. So I want to give you two biblical examples of how to establish contentment in your life. Two words, they both start with a G. Gratitude and generosity. Now these are biblical. Here's what I want to show it to you. is Colossians chapter 3. I mentioned how Colossians chapter 3 says covetousness is idolatry, Right? Well, right after those verses, in verses 12 through 17, uh, there's something Paul repeats three times in five short verses. Be thankful. Be thankful. Uh, If you don't want to succumb to covetousness, which is idolatry, or any of these other sins, Paul says, orient your life with gratitude toward God. That's essentially the statement that he's he's made. He's saying, do all things to God's glory, but, but be grateful, be thankful to God. And this is where gratitude comes in as an antidote, as something that builds contentment into our lives. And then generosity. Uh, There's a guy that happens to show up to Jesus in the Gospels. Several Gospel writers writers, uh, write about him. Mark chapter 10 is a great place to read it, where this man who's rich, who has a lot of wealth, comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, how how are you doing with the commandments? And he starts to list the Ten Commandments. And he gets to number nine and he stops. Jesus leaves off the 10th commandment. Well, what's the guy's response? The guy says, I've done all those things since my youth. And Jesus says, yeah, but there's one thing you lack. In fact, I want you to hear it. Mark chapter 10, verse 21 and 22. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But the man was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Do you see how covetousness and contentment are opposites and how generosity fuels contentment and actually how covetousness fights against generosity? If you haven't given something to someone in a while, if you haven't let go of something that you own lately, It might be because of covetousness in your heart. So gratitude and generosity. So how do you apply that? Go back to the list in Exodus chapter 27, verse 17. Chapter 20, verse 17. The commandment is do not covet your neighbor's house. Think about your house. Think about it in a new way maybe even today. How can you be grateful for where you live? Whether it's a house, an apartment, a whatever it is, you got a place to lay your head tonight. Some people don't. Be grateful in a new way. Maybe even on your way home today after church, you pause in front of your house, wherever you're staying, and you just say, God, thank you. It may be a motel room. God, thank you for providing for me. I know there's people who don't have a place to stay tonight, and I just want to be grateful. You know what that does? It keeps you from looking down the road 
and going, man, sure would be nice if I could have that house. Not bad to look for a new house if God gives you the means and he gives you the ability to do it and provides for you. It's not a bad thing, but when you want it to fulfill your desires and make your life whole, it will always fail. Only God can do that. Be grateful for what you have. Then be generous with what you have. Be generous with your home. Invite people in. Have someone over for a meal. Or I love what a couple families are doing in our house, in our church right now is opening their home to foster children. I mean, this is a great testimony of being generous with what God's given you. Maybe it's not having foster children. Maybe it's becoming foster babysitting certified to help those people. You know, there's all kinds of ways you can be generous with your home. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Instead, be grateful for what God gives you and be generous with what he's given you. And the second thing he says is uh, don't covet your neighbor's wife. You can easily read this, women, other way, don't covet your neighbor's husband. Single people also, don't covet the people who may be in a relationship. If that's the one thing you want, you gotta keep in mind that that's not the one thing that makes people filled. That's not the one thing that makes people happy. God may be giving you the blessing of singleness for a period of time. Be grateful for it. God may be recovering you from the despair of divorce. Be grateful for the work he's doing in your life, even in the midst of adversity. Those of you who are married and you do have a spouse, when's the last time you looked your spouse in the eye and said, I'm so grateful to God for you? Do you know when you do that and those words come out of your mouth and you make that connection from eye to eye, it helps you stop wandering eyes to other places and people. Be grateful and then be generous. How can I give myself to my spouse? The Bible's full of examples of how to do that and full of instruction. Seek the Lord in that. How can I give myself if I'm single to others? How can I use my time that I have an abundance of as a single person or resources to bless the church and God's kingdom to serve others? Don't covet your neighbor's animals or servants. This is about your station in life. Obviously, the Israelites at this point at Mount Sinai, they had just escaped slavery. They don't have anything. They don't have houses. They don't have servants. They don't have animals to speak of. They don't really have anything. God's pointing them down the road going, there will be a time when you see other people with these things and you're gonna think that those things are gonna satisfy you. But I just wanna remind you, don't covet those things. Instead, allow God to provide. So what job do you have? You go, boy, it sure would be better if I had a different job, a different salary, got that promotion. If I had what they had, then I'd be happy. That's coveting. Rather, be grateful for what you do have. Go to work tomorrow in a new way. Go to work tomorrow with a smile on your face and give all you have to what God's given you to do. Work with diligence and integrity and thank God for whatever job it is that he's given you that opportunity uh, to work and then be generous with it. You know, you have a job that allows you finances or you have employees, be generous with your employees. You have a job that allows you vacation time, be generous with your vacation time. I'm thinking about Aaron and uh, Connor who are taking some of their summer break, Connor's high school summer break, and he's going on a mission trip to serve another church. I mean, that's a beautiful picture of this. Be generous with the things you have and your place in life. And then he finishes by saying, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Like if this list wasn't good enough, just don't covet anything. Here's how I'll describe that because we've already covered some stuff and some situations. I'll call this strengths. Don't covet your neighbor's strengths. What you might perceive as your weaknesses, you might see as their strengths. And it could be things as, as you know, as vain as I think that they're better looking than I am. And I wish I was as good looking as they are. Uh, 
you know, it just seems like the intangibles in their life just come together so easy. It seems like I have to work really hard for everything and they just get things coming to them. Like, I wish I had that ability, right? Or they're smarter than I am or they're more healthy than I am or they're more athletic than I am. Their family situation just seems a little more put together. Mine's a little chaotic. You don't want to go to Christmas at my house, right? I mean, this is, this is the kind of things that covetousness does in us is it looks at other situations and it says, I don't have it good. They have it good. I wish I had what they had. And I wish they didn't have what they have. That's what covetousness does. But respond to those things with gratitude and generosity. Even in the midst of adversity and weakness, we can be grateful to God for who he's made us to be and what he's given us at this point in our lives. Find a way to thank God for what you have and who you are. And then be generous with it. Give to other people. Be loosening your grip on the things of this world. Be more about good for others than others' goods. This is the call of Jesus. This is the countercultural, counterintuitive truth of God, that fulfillment doesn't come by prioritizing ourselves. It comes by prioritizing God and then others. These are the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 22, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It just so happens to be that that's the way the Ten Commandments are organized. If you zoom back out for a second, you'll see this. Commandments 1 through 4, love the Lord your God. Commandments 5 through 10, love your neighbor as yourself. Seems like that's a good way to order our lives, isn't it? A couple years ago, Baylor men's basketball, Sikkim Bears, they uh, won the men's basketball national championship and uh, dominated. I mean, just dominated. They were actually kind of the underdogs against Gonzaga in the final game. And man, they just made it look like college playing against high school. It was so beautiful. <laughs> and Coach Scott Drew, uh, who I got the privilege of going to church with when we lived in Waco years and years ago, uh, was very, uh, he's a very committed Christian. And he was very public about the team's motto that year. And they won the championship. The team's motto was J-O-Y, joy. That's what they built everything they did on. But joy was an acronym. And he wasn't ashamed to publicly say as national champion, the team motto that got them to that point was Jesus, others, yourself. And he taught his players that if they ordered their lives in that way, that's how they would find fulfillment, regardless of the results. Man, what a beautiful story. Do you want joy in life? Do you want fulfillment in life? The Ten Commandments are a way to say, make God the center again. Put him in his rightful place. They point us to Jesus so that we would make Jesus the Lord and leader of our lives. And then from there, we organize our own lives with him first, others second. And God will prove himself to be big enough and good enough to meet all your needs. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your goodness. Even how we sang earlier, your goodness is running after me, wouldn't that be true in our lives? That we would recognize, regardless of our circumstance or situation or station in life, we would recognize your goodness, your provision, that you love your children, you meet all their needs, and you provide salvation, which is our greatest need through Jesus Christ alone. I pray today that we would be a church 
that expresses gratitude towards you, is generous toward you and toward others, that we turn away from coveting, we live in the contentment that only you provide through Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.